It's been a month since the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago, the home of former President Donald Trump. And we now know a lot more about what federal agents took. They got more than 100 sensitive documents, some of them marked top secret. The Justice Department has indicated that some of the documents were so sensitive that the people that they assigned to review them and see what was in them had to get higher clearances than the ones that they already had to have permission to even look at them. That's investigative reporter Rosalind Helderman. We also know that they took uh, what they have said is about 11,000 pages or documents of government material uh, that was not necessarily marked classified, but did appear to belong to the government, potentially should have been in the archives, but instead were at Mar-a-Lago. And all of those things, the classified documents, the non-classified documents, were all sort of intermingled in boxes and desk drawers and other areas with other things, books, gifts, mementos, even an item of clothing. Hmm. Uh, Donald Trump's passports. So they were not stored separately. They were stored just intermingled with the personal property of Donald Trump. Just kind of scattered about. Just kind of scattered about in a series of boxes, we know, some of which were contained in a storage room in the basement of Mar-a-Lago, but some of which were actually found in Donald Trump's personal office, including, uh, we've been told that there were three documents located in Donald Trump's desk. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Lexi Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 6th. Today, the latest on the criminal investigation into former President Trump and how a ruling from a Florida district judge could slow that down. Plus, later in the show, we hear what the last three months have been like for Uvalde students who head back to school for the first time today since the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. But first, let's start with Roz. I asked her how our understanding of the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago has changed over the last month. There's still a lot we don't know. Obviously, classified documents, the government does not usually reveal their content. And this is an ongoing criminal investigation, which typically takes place confidentially. And so there's a lot we don't know about what's in those documents. But I think one big thing we have learned um, is we've learned more about the timeline of events that led up to the search, including that Trump had received a grand jury subpoena in May seeking All documents marked classified, anything in his possession that was marked with a classification marking, a stamp, a code put on it by the government indicating it was classified. And in response to that, in June, his lawyers turned over 38 documents that were marked classified. Mm. And one of his representatives actually signed a document saying that they had conducted a diligent search and this is everything there was. But By the time the FBI came with a search warrant in August, they found this more than 100 documents, and they found them in just a few hours. So it raises some real questions about whether things have been hidden, whether things have been concealed, uh, whether people were lying, and if so, who was responsible for those actions. Hmm. Roz, you have been reporting on a ruling that came out yesterday. Tell me about that. 
Sure. So um, about two weeks after the search happened, uh, Donald Trump's lawyers went to court and they asked a judge, a different judge than the one who had approved the search warrant. They asked a new judge to appoint a special master, an outside expert, to review all the documents and material that were seized by the Justice Department during the search and decide whether any of them were things that the Justice Department didn't have a right to review or access, either because they related to uh, Donald Trump's interactions with his attorney, so they were protected by attorney-client privilege, or they wanted them also to be reviewed to see if they were protected by executive privilege, a special kind of privilege that accrues to the president of the United States. On Monday, Labor Day, the judge in Florida, Judge Eileen Cannon, ruled with the Trump side. Judge Eileen Cannon uh, was nominated by Donald Trump to the federal bench. She ordered that a special master be appointed to review these documents. And in the meantime, she said that the Justice Department could no longer use these documents for the time being in their investigation. She enjoined any use of the documents as they attempt to pursue this criminal investigation until the special master is appointed and has a chance to go through all the documents. So the DOJ can't look at these documents, but is there anyone else other than this um, to-be-determined special master who can? Yeah. The Justice Department had tried to argue to the judge, look, we need these documents for this criminal investigation. It's an important investigation. It shouldn't be delayed. Uh, But we also need these documents because there is this other review underway by the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And it's sort of a risk assessment. What they're doing is they're looking at all these documents that were taken from Mar-a-Lago, and they're trying to decide if someone else had had access to these documents that had been improperly stored, uh, what is the damage to national security? How problematic was it to national security that those documents were just stored in the basement of Mar-a-Lago? And let's say someone got in there and read them all or someone sold those secrets or handed them out. Are there uh, sensitive programs run by the U.S. that we may need to stop because they may have been burned through this? Are there human sources uh, whose identities might have been revealed in those documents and we should, you know, get them to safety because they're now endangered by this. So that was a process that was ongoing. And the Justice Department had argued to the judge, look, if you say we can't use these documents, that process is going to stop. And uh, that process is necessary for the security of the country. And so she tried to really um, sort of split the baby, if you will, by saying that process Uh, she will allow to continue. She the judge. She the judge. The judge will allow that process to continue, but the documents cannot be used for the time being for the criminal investigation. Mm. Can we step back for a second? What is a special master exactly? A special master is an outside expert not employed by the Justice Department, not a part of the investigative team, who would review the material that has been taken as part of a search. So they appoint an outside special master to look through all the documents and say, here are the ones that are relevant to the investigation. Justice Department, you can have those right now. And here are all the ones that I think might be protected by privilege. And typically they go to the judge and say, perhaps the Justice Department should not get these. But it basically takes those decisions out of the hands of the Justice Department, which is conducting the investigation and puts them into the hands of a someone who's perceived to be a more neutral third party. And do we know who this special master might be? We don't. The judge asked for the two sides, uh, Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department, to 
try to come up with a joint suggestion of who it should be uh, and to come forward with that joint suggestion by Friday. Now, the qualifications uh, seem challenging for this person. They need someone who understands how investigations work. They need someone who understands attorney-client privilege. The Trump side has also asked for this person to review these documents for executive privilege, which is a highly controversial request, and mm-hmm. how exactly that would work and those determinations would be made is hard to foresee. But presumably, this person would also need to be an expert in that area of the law, and they would need to have a top secret uh, security clearance, given that uh, we know that some of these documents are thought to be highly, highly uh, sensitive and classified. So it's hard a little bit to fathom who that person is going to be, and particularly who they might come up with that would be acceptable to both sides. And so I think we will see on Friday, if we get that far, whether they're able to come up with a person or if the two sides go to the judge and say, you know, we've talked about this, but we can't come up with a joint suggestion to you. And then would the judge just default and pick someone? We shall see. Um, (laughs) It's a little hard to know. Hmm. Perhaps they'll tell the judge who each side wants and she will choose one of those people. Perhaps she will find a way to to locate someone on her own uh, and choose her own person. There's a lot that's um, a little unprecedented about how this would proceed. And I don't know that we know the answer to that question yet. There's another possibility, too, which is that the Justice Department may attempt to appeal her order, and that could happen before Friday. And so whether they appeal or not, we'll have to see. And if they do appeal, uh, whether they appealed in a way that they continue to sort of proceed with the process of trying to choose someone in the meantime or not are are all questions we're going to have to uh, wait and see what happens. You mentioned executive privilege being at the center of this claim. Can we talk more about that? Sure. I think that's going to be a really key part of this discussion moving forward. Executive privilege is the presumption of confidentiality that a president typically gets when he is getting advice and counsel from his aides. It usually comes up when someone outside of the executive branch wants to access presidential documents. So Congress wants to see uh, White House documents. And the president can argue, look, handing these over to you, Congress, another branch of government, would intrude on my ability to get good confidential counsel. There is this privilege that prevents you from being able to get these documents. And courts have considered uh, the issue of executive privilege at various times in the past. What are its limits? What are the powers of a president to keep information at the White House confidential? What's challenging for Trump is that he is, in fact, despite what some would say, not the president. (laughs) Uh, He is a former president. And the courts have looked less often at the issue of does the former president have some ability to uh, have executive privilege over the documents prepared in his administration? And what is the current understanding of what executive privileges a former president actually has. Most legal experts believe that the implication of court rulings that we have had so far, particularly uh, from the Nixon era, would suggest that the former president has no right to executive privilege, that executive privilege is a right of the incumbent president, the current president. So it is Joe Biden's privilege to decide whether or not these documents would remain secret and not Donald Trump's. I think that is a proposition that is absolutely going to be tested in court 
whether it's part of the special master process or later on in this matter, uh, we are going to see court battles over the question of does Donald Trump retain some executive privilege rights to these documents. Uh, Another wrinkle of it which is important in this instance, is typically executive privilege is used by the president to bar uh, the documents from leaving the executive branch, going mm-hmm. to Congress, being made public. In this instance, this is the executive branch. So the Justice Department is part of the executive branch. Conducting a criminal investigation is a core function of the executive branch. So there's really a, a deep question that has not yet been answered about how exactly this is supposed to work, that there's some kind of executive privilege that prevents the executive branch from reviewing executive branch documents. And this mm-hmm. judge is suggesting that can all be sorted out by a special master, uh, that seems very unlikely. It seems like in the end, it will have to be sorted out by the courts. And given the importance of the question, and in some sense, how novel it is, it seems likely that at some point, we may well see uh, action from the Supreme Court on this issue. How does the appointment of the special master impact the timeline of the Justice Department's case against Trump? you know, based on what it found at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, the Justice Department had indicated that appointing a special master would cause delay and that that was unacceptable, that their uh, investigation is important and needs to move forward. It does feel like, particularly given that the judge has instructed them to stop the investigation while this process moves forward, that, you know, it could present delay. And the question is, is it a short pause? Do they agree to a special master on Friday? And does the special master finish his or her work in a couple of weeks? Or is it a long delay? Do they fight at every step of the way? Are there appeals that uh, take even longer? We don't yet know that, but certainly this will cause some level of delay. And what could this mean for how this timeline overlays with the midterms and the coming presidential election? I mean, how can we see that play out? Sure. We're about to enter the time period where we are uh, 60 days out from the midterm elections. There is this general sort of policy and practice. It's not a law, uh, but a general policy at the Justice Department to not take investigative steps in the 60-day period leading up to an election that might be perceived as attempting to influence the election. We've seen this come up numerous times in the past. People will remember uh, this was part of what was so controversial about what FBI Director James Comey did in the 2016 election because he made this big announcement that they were reopening the look at Hillary Clinton's emails uh, well within the 60-day period before the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're entering that period already. And I don't know that we have an entirely clear picture on how the Justice Department was going to view this investigation. After all, Donald Trump is not on the ballot. And so, you know, anything they do, could you argue that it looks like they're attempting to influence the outcome of the election? Seems like a close call, but in the interest of being completely cautious and careful, there was a pretty good chance that this investigation was likely to go dark until the midterms anyhow. But even so, to have their hands tied about what they can do even quietly, grand jury testimony, for instance, which is not supposed to be public, maybe subpoenas even, which they are not supposed to make public. It's hard to believe the Justice Department is pleased with that idea, that they're being forced to shut down the investigation. And it's easy to see a likelihood that they will attempt to appeal that ruling or otherwise ask for clarification to try to ensure that they can continue to take some steps, even despite this order and despite the upcoming midterms. 
Roz, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Roz Helderman is a political enterprise reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernofsky. After the break, we head to Uvalde, Texas, to hear from a family who has had to answer a difficult question. Should they send their kids to school this year? We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Today is the first day of school for students at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, where three months ago, a gunman entered the school and killed 19 fourth graders and two teachers. The actual school building is being demolished, but returning students will go to class a mile away. So there is not a family in Uvalde that wasn't impacted in some way by the massacre. They're so interconnected that really, truly no one was untouched. Arlise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post in Texas. She's been in Uvalde a lot this summer, following survivors. She says that families have really struggled over the last few months, especially over whether or not to go back to school in person. Families like Jalissa Ibarra's. That's Jalissa. This year, she'll be in fourth grade. She is an imaginative, witty, and shy little girl. And she shares a bunk bed uh, room situation with her little sister, Kalia, who is a a little spitfire. So Jalissa is a nine-year-old who was inside of Robb Elementary School when the shooting began. Now, she was having lunch at that time, so she wasn't directly impacted in in the way that others were. But, you know, she's still living with the trauma of that day. That day, Jalissa lost her cousin, Ileana Cruz Torres, in the shooting. Okay, well, I'm going to put it up, okay? Come on, get your sandals on. She lives with her grandmother, Marcela Cabrales, and her grandfather, who is a pastor. They live right next door to the church, actually. And Marcela has her own trauma from that day because she responded as a minister to the children who uh, were being evacuated from the classrooms where the carnage unfolded. Hundreds of people marched through the streets of Uvalde, calling for big changes in the school district and the city. The community joined families. In the weeks since the shooting, there have been many revelations about what happened and about what should have happened and what didn't happen. 
in Uvalde during that massacre response. And some of that has really turned the community against itself. So what that means is that there's very little trust right now. Many participants calling for accountability among city leadership and increased school safety. Governor Abbott is giving Uvalde 33 uh, state troopers to patrol all of these campuses. They've got cameras on the way to install in all of their schools. They've erected these super tall uh, fencing around all of the campuses and reduced entry into the school through one entryway. But even with all of that in and virtual school and whatnot, there's so much grief and anger. Some parents have refused to send their kids back to uh, Uvalde Public Schools. Others have enrolled them in nearby school districts. They've demanded virtual schooling. And through all of this, Marcella and Jalissa are trying to figure out, well, what's best for us? So it's been an up and down summer. There are a lot of things that happened that were meant to distract the children of Rob Elementary School. Things like family fun days and donations. All of Uvalde was there. Yeah, it was crazy. It was fun. They went to theme parks for free and got you know candies and sweets, but all of that. Though it was meant to be a distraction, it was really a reminder of sort of this weird situation that they were living in the aftermath of something so horrific. And one thing that Marcella told me that throughout the summer, throughout this, you know, very strange and bizarre summer, she was looking for signs that the girls were okay or not okay um, and wanting to respond. Jalissa, as I mentioned, is is pretty shy and has done a good job of bottling up her feelings for most of the summer. And it was during um, a dinner recently, about two weeks out from school, that she's just started to, to open up about what she was feeling. Grandma, yes. I wanted to tell you this, but I didn't know it was a good time. But I just remembered it whenever Grandpa started talking about his brother, that he had a dream about him. So in that moment, Jalissa comes into the kitchen and she basically confesses to her grandmother that she's harboring a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, that she's been having nightmares. I had a dream about Eliana one time when I was asleep. Eliana, our cousin. I had a dream that her friend and her were still alive and we were at school still and she was safe and that she was alive with us. And then she had to leave, but we were riding, we were seeing the horses before she had to go. And then whenever we were done, she left, and then I woke up. How did you feel when you woke up? Is it still in the middle of the night, or is it morning? I always wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, I do too. But how did you feel? Sad, nervous. I still wanted to see her, but yeah. I felt sad. Yeah. Well, it's, it's normal to feel sad because, you know, we're sad that people die. We're sad of what happened, you know, how it happened. So it's normal to feel sad. 
It's, it's just normal. Where it's not the first time or the last we'll feel sad. Marcella was devastated. In some ways, this is exactly what she wanted. She wanted the little girl to, to say what she was actually feeling. But it really hit her hard in some ways because she herself has not confronted a lot of the feelings from that day. And she she kept wondering whether she was doing enough to, to help Jalissa through this experience. You know, I still feel sad when I talk to different people sometimes. You know, I still want to cry. It still hurts me. It's normal. We'll work at it together, right? We'll work at it together. And... The way that Marcella described it, she was 50-50 on the fence about sending her. She had already signed them up, uh, the kids, but she was waiting for some kind of extra assurance that things would be okay. She was sort of vacillating between, well, I don't want, you know, I don't want to raise a child who's afraid and doesn't know how to deal with their own anxieties. I also don't want them at home. They just spent two years because of COVID at home. Um, I don't want to raise them in a bubble or isolated. Like how these these options are not great. You know, other families had other options. For example, the, the private school in town, Sacred Heart, did offer free tuition to various families, but their wait list is super long. They're totally full. Apart from, you know, sending her... 20 to 50 miles away to another school district or, you know, keeping her at home for something like virtual school. These things weren't an option for Marcella's family and for many families in Uvalde who are low income. What's hard is you want to make, you, you're, you feel responsible for every decision that you make for them. I guess I want to be sure that I'm making the best decision for them. And that's hard. After a summer of going back and forth about it, Marcella and Jalissa ultimately decided that yes, Jalissa would be one of the students returning to school in Uvalde today. We see the anger and the rage at the school board meetings, at the city council meetings, at the protests and stuff, but there are these quiet moments of struggle, how do you achieve normal after something like this happens to your community? Arelise Hernandez is a reporter based in Texas for The Post. The story was produced by Alana Gordon. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernofsky and Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Lexi Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.